0: And now, later than scheduled, Meyer and Christie venture beyond the tri-cornered window, in the Wreckers.
1: Oh, I've forgotten. Hi,
0: Christy. <laughs> Hi. It's been a little bit. Yeah,
1: this is a kind of new venture for us because we're trying out a new format. Because usually what we do is we would just talk about both things we recommended to each other in one episode. But I think we started having concerns that there were some like tonal issues where we'd talk about like an incredibly serious fantasy book about like yeah. human condition and also a daft cartoon from the 80s about raccoons so we've decided to split it up into two episodes where each thing we recommended gets an episode to itself so this episode we'll be discussing the thing that christy recommended to me which was a, a manga called the night beyond the tricornered window by tomoko yamashita it's i guess a horror like
0: it's a lot of everything and it's, not quite anything
1: it's like ghosts and that
0: yeah. I think so. suspense thriller is more, if I were to. Yeah. Even with the supernatural elements.
1: And it's also yaoi, kind of.
0: <laughs> which we'll talk about.
1: It's published by Sublime, which is the, like, BL.
0: It's like the sub imprint of Viz. Yeah,
1: imprint, that's the word I was looking yeah. for. Of Viz Media that publishes a lot of your manga and stuff. And I've had like stuff from them. Like Christie's bought me. I think Crimson Spell was one of theirs. The
0: Crimson Spell's uh sublime,
1: yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely like
0: That's yeah, we proper.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's like but fucking. Um this yeah. is more kind of it's more kind of like conceptually gay, I guess. Um, I'm
0: gonna we're gonna talk about it, I'm super excited. Yeah.
1: So the plot is basically uh, there's a guy called Mikado He's a clerk in a bookshop, and he's one of your like Bruce Willis six sense, I see dead people types. <laughs> yeah. Um, where he like he sees go the the way that it's like introduced to the reader is really it's done really well because uh, he wears glasses and it shows him taking his glasses off and like all the people go blurry, but he can see the dead person with like perfect clarity. So I thought that's like a really interesting and cool way to like visually communicate to the audience.
0: Within, like, three pages, yeah, yeah, of what's going on. It's like, this is a guy who works in a shop. Ah, oh, he sees dead people.
1: Wait, no, Bruce Willis wasn't the guy who saw dead people in that, was he?
0: No, he was the dead person. Spoiler! Oh, no! <laughs> oh, no! Today
1: was the day I was finally going to watch oh,
0: it. Oh, shit!
1: No, I wasn't. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, I've never even seen it.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, it's that kind of it's that kind of thing. Someone who can see ghosts, basically.
0: Yes, they have the sight.
1: <laughs> the bookshop he works in. He gets, like, basically accosted by this guy called uh, Hiakawa, who is, like, an exorcist, I guess.
0: He's an interesting fella, huh? Yeah. He's... I love his story. Everything going on with that guy is interesting. <laughs> yeah.
1: His job is he makes ghosts fuck off.
0: That's what he decided it is anyway. He does it, yeah. He's really making it up as he goes.
1: <laughs> and he finds that he can use Mikado as kind of, like... I guess it's like an amplifier
0: an amplifier slash battery yeah he Kind can of?
1: you know he, he sort of puts his hand on him and then like a big sort of glowy hand comes out of his chest and he's like ghosts <laughs> and um, it's kind of like a lot of it's played for comedy
0: it, it is initially <laughs> it's a yeah. manga
1: most of all the fact that to, obviously to do this they have to get up close with ghosts and mikado is like understandably fucking terrified <laughs> Yeah. So he's basically got this dude, like, psychically siphoning off his soul power and also pushing him towards a ghost. So.
0: (laughs) It's a good time.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of the. I guess, like, the main like relationship
0: yeah the gist of it (laughs) i've done a bad because it's a really really interesting series but it's kind of hard to talk about if you haven't read it you know what i mean like it's difficult to lay the scene and express how subtle the images are and how they use it to tell their story which is very quite low stakes really
1: (laughs) yeah there's all kind of like a lot of the sort of like physical intimacy between the characters is like very tense because it's usually like involves banishing a ghost
0: or some spirit or
1: yeah and it kind of takes the place where in a regular BL comic where the sex would be essentially
0: Uh, yeah because they don't I mean
1: I'm like five books in and they haven't had sex and I honestly couldn't tell you if they're going to. It's it's not kind of yeah. leading up to what... It's not really like a slow burn romance. It's kind of like... It's not. This, this guy's just kind of dragooned this other dude into his ghost-busting <laughs> business. And is like a bit like touchy-feely about it. Like literally. The funniest thing is the fact that, like Christy said, Hiakawa does seem to be mostly making stuff up as he goes along.
0: He doesn't know the art of what he's doing. He doesn't even know the theory of yeah. demon exorcism or anything and you don't really realize that until this other character gets pulled in who does know those things and yeah. has like training on what he's doing. It's like
1: very apparent Hiakawa's was just gone, oh this works. So yeah, he he's just does it. that. It's like someone who found out that you can charge your phone by like wiring it to a car battery.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's decided to do it.
1: You can do that, but it's kind of dangerous and there's probably a better way for you to achieve what you're going after here. The other character that Christy mentioned uh, is a guy called Kater. He's like a psychic and he works as a fortune teller, but he's like a bogus fortune teller, even though he's got real (laughs) psychic powers, but he still like uses it to like help people. I really, he was my favorite character, which I know is not going to surprise Christy.
0: (laughs) He's a good fella.
1: Yeah, he's kind of like, I don't know if there's like a term for it in romance, if there's like a name for the specific kind of trope, but he's kind of like the contrasting suitor. I guess
0: in K drama we call them the second lead.
1: Yeah, you've got like your main love interest for the protagonist, who in this case is Iokawa and then you have someone else who's like more stable. Yeah, but less interesting. But less there. Yeah, yeah, more stable but less interesting. The you know the 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 Jin in face from Jane Eyre.
0: Oh yeah, what is his face, huh? Yeah. <laughs> see you don't really remember them as much exactly as you
1: remember the... you remember mr remember rochester because he really was an well, yeah. and he locked his wife in the attic <laughs> yeah. but you know you don't remember, remember, remember that guy the dude who just like he just fucks off to be a missionary or something but yeah. kate is kind of even though he's he is actually like more interesting
0: he is a good second lead yeah
1: and like morally gray than a lot of those like characters tend to be because he's still he's kind of like a criminal a little bit it's
0: He's still on the outside.
1: Yeah, like, they sort of refer to him as a fraud, but at the same time, he does actually have psychic powers. Yeah. Everything about this is weird. Everything about this book is... It's a
0: very interesting, unique type of series, and that's something that the mangaka uh, Yamashita is very, very good at. She's really... she's wonderful. I really wish her stuff would take off better in the US. I wish people would take the chance, because she's harder to sell... I guess, because her work is more, uh, I'm going to say challenging. I'm going to go with challenging. Yeah, that's not a bad description. Her, a lot of her stuff is is more challenging. It's, it's good because you can get with it really easy, but the more you're with it and the more she reveals to you about these characters and what's happening and their history and the characterization and how everything moves very quickly, but at the same time, <laughs> very slowly, it's really masterful comic booking, I think, yeah. in my opinion.
1: Because... The whole sort of thing with Hiakawa is that he either doesn't remember his past or he is affecting to not remember his past. Yeah. And he is kind of like, he's a mystery both to Mikado and to the reader.
0: And to himself a little bit. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And it's only in the fifth book that you start getting an idea of like who he is and why he is the way he is.
0: And where he's come from. Yeah. There's
1: a few times that Mikado says that he seems like he's grown up overseas, where like he just seems like a little bit out of sync with what's
0: everything expected and it's it's interesting how she can express that within his body language in a static medium like his eyes and the way he looks you can tell from the just the pictures that he is a little off and he is focusing on things that yeah we're not
1: (laughs) the cool thing about his character is that he's his character is like very relaxed
0: he's my favorite
1: (laughs) in every scenario and it's like
0: it's an unnerving
1: spooky ghost shit will happen and he'll just be like (laughs) or like he'll just He'll be incredibly rude, but not out of, like, malice. Just out of, like, negligence. Yeah. He he doesn't kind of...
0: He's kind of Sherlock Holmesian in a really inverse way, which is fascinating. Yeah, this is, like,
1: as close to an acceptable version of the BBC Sherlock version of Sherlock Holmes (laughs) of the, like, insufferable, slightly inscrutable genius. But he's still sort of more personable and...
0: Instead of a genius, he's openly like, I don't know what I'm doing. Let's try this. He
1: comes across as very friendly, <laughs> but it's in a very insincere way. Yeah. Like, he's always smiling. And it's it comes across a little bit sinister, which I think is by design.
0: I think so, too.
1: But at the same time, it's kind of like, you don't get the impression that he's doing it maliciously. He just, he doesn't get it.
0: Yeah, after a while, you start to realize he's kind of childish in the way that he doesn't have a moral compass and not from, like, Direct negligence, but more of just you start to think like, literally, no one's taught this guy anything. Yeah. Like, he's literally making everything up, not just the demon stuff, how to be a person. Like, he's yeah. improving. It's like maladaptive
1: <laughs> socialization rather than yeah. like, actively being a dick.
0: Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Most of the comic, I think, is about his interactions with Mikado. Mikado is like, he's a bit more straightforward as a character because he's the guy with the, the person that you get with some kind of magical power or some some characteristic that makes them like for want of a better term special yeah and they want nothing more in the world than to not be like that to just be you know what is considered normal yeah in his case he wants to not see ghosts which i think is like a pretty reasonable
0: desire yeah
1: <laughs> yeah going into this was kind of it in- like, anybody who follows me on Twitter, and especially Christy, will know that you show me, like, most monsters in fiction and I will see a potential romantic partner. <laughs> the, the only things that, like, really properly scare me are ghosts and zombies. And um, the ghosts in this are done really well because they're done really creepily. It's a little bit like the same kind of thing as, like, The Grudge. Yeah. But not quite so full on. It's, it's more kind a of...
0: a little abstract, but not... And what's nice is they're all very different. Yeah. Like, there is no format or formula or visual, you know... This is what each ghost is going to look like. They're all completely different.
1: When I when I bought the entire series because it's only available digitally at the moment, I bought it and read it on the Sublime website. When I started reading it, it was like at night. And the first time, the first time they go on a job, there's like a ghost of a woman in a corner, and she's like facing like the corner of where two walls meet. Yeah, that's some grudge shit. Yeah, you know, like the end of the Blair Witch Project. Now it's like, nope, gonna read that in the daytime.
0: It's interesting. It's one of those things, because when you think horror manga, a lot of the time it's like detail or it's... People tend to think of like Junji Junji Ito Ito type of stuff. Yeah. And I think this is freakishly effective for being incredibly more sparse. I think
1: there's kind of like a spectrum of like Junji Ito to like High School of the Dead.
0: (laughs) God, Christ almighty. (sighs) What does it say about me as a person that I know what that is and I can (laughs) pinpoint why it's bad? (laughs) Says a lot, really. Man.
1: Say so what you like about T V tropes, but there is a reason that there is a trope called Gynaxing <laughs> that specifically relates to the animation of breasts.
0: That's beyond gynaxing, okay. Yeah, it's that's beyond Gynax. It's, it's <laughs> ludicrous. Ludicrous speed.
1: But yeah. This this is more towards the sort of the Junji Ito end of things.
0: With more of an emphasis on psychological Yeah,
1: it's all about like kind of like a constant atmosphere of unease
0: yeah it's great
1: <laughs> which is really good because it it kind of communicates the way that the the main character has like lived his entire life there's a little bit in uh, at the end of one of the volumes they they always have like a little sort of a little sort of off to the side story that's usually yeah, comedic. Yeah, they're lighter, and, goofy. Yeah. And there's one where Mikado's talking to Kater because they kind of get like a friendly relationship. And Kater remarks the fact that Mikado is quite fit. It like he used to work. He like he worked out and stuff. And he's like, yeah, because when I was a kid, I used to run away from ghosts. And then I found out that I liked running, so I do it on purpose. <laughs> and I used to do boxing so I could fight ghosts. But then I found out that I couldn't punch them, so. <laughs> Even though that's, like, a joke, it's kind of meant to be just, like, a throwaway gag, it does nevertheless give you a kind of insight into what his life's been like. Yeah. Where, it's like, his entire life has been, like, constantly looking out the corner of his eye, knowing that, like...
0: Dominated by this thing, The the
1: supernatural is everywhere and means him harm. Like we mentioned, this is published by Sublime, which is the, the Yowie imprint of Viz. And it's kind of interesting because it uses a lot of, like, the visual tropes of, like, Yowie or Boys Love comics but more as a way to kind of underscore the feeling of unease rather than to communicate anything kind of like romantic or like titillating, I guess. Yeah. The relationship that Hiakawa and Mikado have is very tactile. Like they do have to like touch each other for for the thing to work. There's there's like one plot line of a, a ghost that appears when people sleep together in a motel. So... They have to, like, go and sleep in a bed.
0: There's one bed. Yeah, it's the most
1: fanfic shit, but... It's great. It's done in the service of horror.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it works. It's freaky.
1: Me and Christy, we both like romance fiction, so we're not kind of coming at this with an attitude of, oh, someone's taking the tropes of romance fiction and making it quote-unquote good.
0: Yeah, not at all.
1: Someone's using the, the building blocks of romance fiction to tell a story in a completely different genre.
0: Yeah, and to tell their particular type of story. For this series, it's interesting because you said earlier that the horror bits are kind of where in normal Yowie they'd have sex, except in normal yaoi that would be too often. So it's funny because by omitting the sex, they actually touch and have more tactile connection more often than other series do um, without ever, you know, going all the way. And that's kind of an interesting decision to make because it actually gives more if you're going to term it service type stuff just without (laughs) everyone's wearing their clothes and there's a ghost in the room so (laughs) it's very very strange and it does lead to that unease feeling and I think we'll get into it but I think personally that for this series if you're going to align it with a homosexual experience or anything like that I think it's more about how if you are gay and you're not out, there's this feeling of unease. There's this feeling of who can you trust, who is like you. Like there's this part that, oh, I already forgot his name. The second lead, the fraud, but he's not. Uh,
1: I don't know how to pronounce his surname,
0: but his first name is Keita. Keita, yeah. Um, there's this part at the end, like they go to this party and they're trying to root out this ghost, that's a social ghost, I guess. <laughs> and at the end, like in the stairwell, he like gets up and leaves and they're like, oh, you're gonna leave all your friends? He's like, well... I guess they're my friends, but not really. They're not like me. They're not like us. How much can I really connect to them? How much can I share about myself? Yeah, that, that seems
1: really powerful because it's like...
0: It kind of hits you.
1: Yeah, because they say to him, you know, what about your friends? And he's like, they're not the kind of people who are going to notice that I'm gone.
0: Yeah. and they're, Which is like, woof. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of the part where once you hit that part in the story, looking back at where all you've seen, you start to kind of realize this is a bit, I think, an allegory. I think it's about subtextually... The isolation of being in LGBTQIA community, how it can feel sometimes if you don't, you're new to it, you're new to your own realization, or you've been there for a while, but you still don't know what steps to take. And I think that's also parallel to homeboy not knowing how to talk to people correctly and (laughs) making everything up as he goes. Like, how do you navigate if there's no one there to teach you how to be you? You know what I mean? And I, I think that's really, really interesting. And it's that layer, again, how it's very skillful in the story that it, it compiles. So once you get to that point, you have all this evidence you have already read. And it, it's very impactful. It kind of hits you. There's a lot of parts in the story that are shockingly kind of, for me anyway, when I was reading it, where I'd put the book down and be like, damn. <laughs> i gotta i gotta go for a walk this this yaoi horror story is fucking me up Like, <laughs> this is some emotional stuff yeah. it's great
1: the way that it uses the kind of the romance tropes is interesting because like i said it's it's using the like genre conventions for a different purpose and a lot i think a lot of it lies like in like subverted expectations yeah there, there might be someone who bought this expecting that the <laughs> the guys would fuck the thing that it kind of brought to mind when I was thinking about this was Mike Knoll from the Studying Granada podcast was yeah. telling me about a book called The Devil's Grin by Anna Lee Rinderberg which it's like a Sherlock Holmes story but from the perspective of someone who is neither Sherlock Holmes nor Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes in that comes across as a much less likeable character Mike was saying the implication is that Watson kind of like softened him when he, when he wrote up the stories mm. and it's kind of it's kind of like a little bit similar to that whereas, you know, if, if someone writes a Sherlock Holmes story where like, the characterization of Holmes is like off to what someone who'd want to read a Sherlock Holmes story would expect because a, a lot of it's contextual yeah. a lot of the stuff that like Sherlock Holmes does, if you divorce it from knowing who Sherlock Holmes is and what Sherlock Holmes is like, it does come across as like the antics of a weird asshole <laughs> Yeah, and the way that the night beyond the tricornered window uses romance tropes is kind of the same thing it's like if this were to happen in a slightly different context like the whole thing about you know oh there's only one bed yeah it's like there's only one bed but there's a ghost under it and i'm gonna forcibly remove your ability to move um <laughs> yeah so you can pretend to be asleep so this ghost will come out and and creep on you <laughs> a lot of the discussion that goes unspoken in the story is about consent although they do, they do talk about it sometimes but it's often yeah just sometimes it's just played for laughs where you know ricardo was like you can't just grab me and leech off my soul power without asking and he I was like what why no i will and again it kind of like sells the idea of him being a little bit creepy
0: yeah no i i think the story does have pretty clear lines about consent what gets muddled is Again, you have people that don't necessarily know what their role is or what they're, they're doing. So they're kind of making up the line of consent themselves as they go. You've got someone you have to talk into, hey, you need to tell me when we're going to do this. You have someone that's giving them leeway to like change and learn. But then it also does It does have that unease feeling and it's not necessarily because of the ghost. It's because as an observer of these two characters and the way it's done, you can, you can see where things aren't okay and what's not right about it. But at the same time, you also understand both of their positions. It's, yeah. again, skillful. And I don't think it's going to be for everybody for sure. And again, though, because it's in the abstract supernatural space, it's a conversation you can have without really, truly, I think, going too far to upset people about having that conversation.
1: For me, one of the most interesting relationships in the book is the one between Mikado and Keita, because they do have a kind of, like, weird friendship. But initially, a lot of it is to do with, like, Keita saying to Mikado, it's like, hey, most of this stuff this guy's doing to you is, like, mad not okay.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, I know you don't know that, and obviously he doesn't know that, but just so you know now... (laughs) not okay
1: the thing that it reminded me of was um we must have talked about it before at some point but there's a series of fantasy books that both me and christy like the the farseer series by robin hobb Mm. and the main character in the first trilogy of that fits he's got this thing called the wit which means he can talk to animals
0: that's what okay cool
1: (laughs) and he he develops a kind of like spirit bond relationship with a wolf cub named night eyes because he's, he's growing up in, like, the capital city because he's, like, the illegitimate son of a prince. But in-universe, the wit is kind of... It, it's kind of analogous to, like, witchcraft. If anyone knew that he could do it, he would be hanged and burned over water and stuff. So he has to keep this thing a secret. And then in the third book of the first trilogy, for the first time in his life, he meets other people who have the wit. And they kind of tell him it's, like, really frowned upon for someone to make this spiritual connection with an animal when the animal is essentially a baby yeah I think they actually say it would be like a man marrying a baby it's it's that level of weird but because Fitz didn't have any context for
0: no one was there to teach him and the society refuses anyone to talk about it he didn't know he genuinely had no idea and a
1: little bit a lot of like hikawas stuff is kind of like that yeah. it's like he can do all this stuff and even the people who didn't have like as sheltered an upbringing as he must have by their own admission, are making stuff up as they go along. But they have a better understanding of the dangers and, like, for want of a better term, the rules. Yeah. Whereas Piekawa, like, his, like, entire character is based on he finds something that works and then he just incorporates it into his, like, toolkit.
0: And he watches what others do and he's like, oh, I could try that, I guess he's really making stuff up. Like he's improvising magic basically <laughs> uh, through watching others and then coming up with an idea yeah. and then seeing if he can do it. He's kind of like a mad scientist really. Cause he does not stop to think about if he should yeah.
1: do this. It's kind of portrayed like as, as dangerous and unsettling as it sounds like it would be. yeah. You know, it, it would be like, it would be like a child figuring out how to use a nuclear reactor through trial and error, you know? <laughs> there's a great line in a Terry Pratchett book where... It's, it's one of the witches books where they, like two of the senior witches find out that some girls who want to be witches have been going up to the Standing Stones and like dancing around and stuff and the way their reaction is described in the book is like a nuclear engineer finding out that somebody has been banging two pieces of uranium together to keep warm <laughs> and it's that kind of thing like a lot of the time our kind of like view into this world is through Keita cater, and Keita is just constantly saying to Mikado yo that's fucked up dude <laughs> The reason that I sort of talk about Kater in terms of being the second lead is that he is like directly contrasted with Hiyakawa. And he's the one who's saying to Mikado, like all the stuff that Hiakawa's doing is is wrong, basically. And then you see like Hiakawa's processes and you realize that his kind of approach to everything is just this is what works for me and I'm gonna do what works for me. And if it doesn't work for other people that seems to not even occur to him. And, you know, you do sort of slowly get context for why he is like that. And it's very interesting. But at the same time, you're kind of reading it like, Jesus, dude, this is... Why? Why, why are you like this? And then you find out why he's like this. And you're like, oh, that's why he's like this.
0: And it, it again, it hits really hard. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a single character we haven't even brought in, the detective. But when you when you get to that final... I don't want to talk about it too much. When you get to that volume where you do learn about... um,
1: yeah. Um,
0: Yokawa's stuff, there's this amazing interview process that's non-linear. It's really hard to describe without having to read it, but it's one character talking to another character through time, interposing two different interviews on top of each other, and it takes place over like four or five pages. Yeah. And it's just really cool. <laughs> it's a really cool bit of comic booking scene. The, the cop character Hanzawa, is... I, I have a soft spot. For, I adore him. I
1: have a soft spot for like old rumpled anime and manga detectives, and it all goes back to Zenigata from Lupin <laughs> third. But yeah, uh, yeah. Hanzawa is a lot. He's a lot more competent than Zenigata is. I love, which him. is kind of unfair to Zenigata. <laughs> but uh, Hanzawa, he, he's like a very no-nonsense cop, and his kind of.
0: His superpower is...
1: Yeah, his superpower
0: is that he's Not believing shit.
1: Yeah, he's like, <laughs> his superpower is he doesn't believe in the supernatural. Even when there's kind of like empirical evidence of the supernatural that's been put before him many times, he's just like, ban and by it. And that's actually kind of like a source of power. It's, it's like a passive buff. Yeah. Where a lot of the stuff that would like affect other people who were maybe, you know, people who were more open to the idea of the supernatural would be harmed by it. But because he's got this kind of, like, rigid non-belief...
0: Non-belief. It's like he's got an armor on, basically.
1: Yeah, I think there's a point where, at one point during one of the interviews, Hikawa says to him, a lot of the time when people say they don't believe, they just believe in a different thing.
0: But You don't believe in anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's just, you know, he believes in what he can see. He believes in what he can directly experience in the material world. But he still, like, brings in Hikawa and Mikado as, like, consultants on cases that are weird like even though he doesn't believe in it maybe it's kind of like he sees it as like a placebo effect
0: i think they explain it away he's like i've been uh, doing this detective work for so long that if anything literally anything will help me solve a case i'll just do it because i just want to get it done (laughs) like he just wants to solve the thing and be moved on already that if he hears oh this person helped out one time he'd be like all right call him in whatever like he, he doesn't believe so hard that he'll call in the psychic and be like do your thing whatever like you know what i mean yeah he's
1: he's like very resistant to the idea of there being such a thing as psychics yeah but he's like sure whatever
0: results are results yeah there's
1: another character who we haven't talked about who is um this girl called erica
0: <gasps> who baby.
1: is kind of like it's that thing that happens sometimes especially in anime and manga where you get someone who's kind of like they could be the protagonist of a of a different series yeah easily and i guess the series that erica would be the star of would be called something like i was a teenage necromancer for the yakuza
0: (laughs) it'd be called death note
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah she basically curses people for the yakuza and she's got like a yakuza bodyguard who's amazing yeah and he's just this very kind of, like, no-nonsense... I mean, he's not like Hans Are in that, like... It's not that he doesn't believe, because I think, like, he's... He's seen enough, yeah. He's seen enough of the shit, he knows that something's up. But he's... For him, it's kind of like a job. It's like, I've got to protect this girl. So he just focuses on that and lets her do her weird stuff. Erica is kind of, like, originally positioned... Uh, you, think, you think she's going to be the the dad, yeah. Yeah. Um, You think she's the big bad, yeah. Yeah. You think she's going to be, like, the Moriarty. If you use, like, the Sherlock Holmes yeah. analogy. But it turns out she's more, like in a way she's kind of just as much a victim but also not because she's she's a little bit like hiakawa in that she seems a little bit off
0: yes for sure
1: a lot of the things she does are for the sake of expediency she obviously just has like a better handle on
0: what she's doing yeah
1: what is or isn't considered the proper thing to do with her like psychic curse powers and stuff.
0: But she still does them because she has to.
1: <laughs> yeah. A lot of the time she's not doing it out of choice. You do see like a couple of things where she's cursed someone on their own initiative. Yeah. But most of the stuff that you see her doing is kind of is being mandated through her dad and this guy who's like who's called the professor. So yeah. if he wanted to, you know,
0: he's the true big bad. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, he is the Moriarty. He's literally called the professor for a start. Yeah. So and he's involved with this cult, which we we can't seem to discuss horror manga that doesn't at some point involve the cult, a cult. Yeah, a cult about light. Well, I I think that's a
0: lot to do with uh, a lot of things.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's sort of harking back to like stuff from like relatively recent Japanese history. Um,
0: And ongoing,
1: yeah. Yeah. um, I uh, I meant politics when I said history. Same thing. (laughs) I am dumb. But yeah, it's interesting to see the kind of the interactions that they have as characters. And you get a sort of sense of the larger world. And then you see, like, Erica interacting with Mikado. And again, she she kind of, like, echoes a lot of the conversations that he has with Kater, where she's like... (sighs) i don't want to say that she's also positioned as like a potential love interest
0: i don't think so because
1: she's like a teenager it's more that she's kind of like taken an interest in Mikado because like his powers and his abilities are interesting the way it's described it's almost like his his soul is too big for his body like he's such like a profound source of like spiritual energy that people are like naturally
0: drawn to him yeah yeah
1: like you know people who are spiritually inclined i
0: guess they, they mentioned a few times that they kind of generally always know where he is, and they never explain what that means, but I think it's something along the lines of his aura or his, his power is so immense that once you have contact with him, you'll just kind of always feel a tugging, like you kind of know where he is, and I don't think it's intentional yeah. as...
1: Yeah, it's like the first time it comes up is it's. I think it's like it's meant to be sort of played as one of the kind of semi creepy joke <laughs> aspects of Hikawa, where he just like sits down in front of Nikado yeah. in like a cafe or something. And he's like, "How'd you know I was here?" And he's just like, "I always know who you are," and he just says it as if it's the most obvious thing. That that's kind of another thing about his character. He, is he's that... an
0: unnerving character, and Erica herself is also pretty unnerving too. She has kind of a similar body language thing where she always seems a little disconnected and a little distracted when she's talking to other people. You know what I mean? I think she's a really interesting character. I think she's my favorite character. Uh, I ultimately surprises me not at all. Um, well, Tomoko Yamashita is very, very, very good at, I hate saying, you know, she's really good at writing female characters, but it's true. And, um, her, her characters, anyone really, um, but a lot of her female characters really, really shine in being incredibly layered and different and believable. But she's not afraid to make them creepy and she's not afraid to make them have problems or, you know, not be perfect. <laughs> and she does that with her Josie work and her, she's done a few shoujo things. Um, and I, I really like her female characters. And I think Erica's amazing in that she reflects back, you know, hey, your soul's really big. You just let anyone go in there. That's crazy. Which is a mimic of, you know, second leads. Uh, I'm really bad at names right now. Uh, <laughs> cautions. But she also mimics the unstableness of um, my brain. Why names? Hiyakawa. Thank you. <laughs> <Hiakawa>. <laughs> I It's on my other page. I should just turn my page. Um, <laughs> of Hiokawa at the same time. So she she does both. She, she does justify Hiakawa in a little way because she then later comes up and he's like, oh, I always know where you are. Which is also still creepy, but it does give revelance of like, oh, he wasn't just saying that to be... Because he's like a stalker. It's because of his power. He's just not explaining why. <laughs> That's his problem is he never explains why. An
1: interesting thing, to, to go back to sort of cater and the sort of communication aspect and like the contrast that you often get between primary and second romantic leads in romance is there's like one chapter where Keita kind of partners with Mikado to do the kind of work that he does with Hiakawa. yeah and it's the the contrast is very different mostly because Keita is kind of explaining the process
0: as he goes to Mikado
1: as it goes and he's like he's drawing like wards and stuff to make sure that he's protected which is a contrast with how Hiakawa does it which is just like right there's a ghost here we go
0: it shoves him literally that way yeah
1: pushes him towards the ghost and doesn't tell him what's going on Bailey explains it afterwards and I think you know I don't know whether as an audience we're meant to sort of make much of that but it feels so deliberate that I kind of think we're supposed to see like it it would probably be better for this guy if he was partnered with this other dude but that would be a less interesting story so he's partnered with this weirdo
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: now I know uh you'd mentioned having stuff about the queer aspect of it
0: yeah okay everybody What I'm going to do is I am going to segue this conversation into ideas of canon and non-canon depictions of homosexuality. Obviously, Maya and I don't give a shit about canon stuff. (laughs) Like, it just doesn't exist. I don't care. Um, But for this conversation, you know, the idea...
1: My city now. Yeah,
0: the idea of a story being explicit, this person's gay versus hinting at it or only being subtextual. So that's what I mean by canon in, in this context. And I think this series, the night beyond the Tricorner window is a very good example of the nuances inherent within engaging and analyzing media within queer theory. The only explicitly defining homosexual thing about this series is its publication, <laughs> uh, which for manga publication is effectively genre and Tricorner window is yaoi, which is homosexual stories about men loving men, typically for women, but that's changing. And What's absolutely fascinating is if this series were printed in a seinen magazine instead of a Yaoi one, and if this series was brought over by Viz rather than its subset Sublime, I think it would A, be more popular, B, be enshrined in a discord of being bait. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of a fun exercise because you could do the opposite with other things. So like, let's say I have magic now and I have made <laughs> Jojo's Bizarre Adventure um, a yaoi. It's no longer a sentence title; It's a yaoi. Okay. Um, it's now in a yaoi magazine and I've literally changed none of it. No, nothing. I've, I haven't changed the image. I haven't changed a word. None of it has changed. The series is now undeniably scorchingly gay. <laughs> and it's because of the publishing. And that has a lot of impact and power in manga that I know it has an effect on an audience but then you get people coming in that maybe don't know this stuff and then how much it affects them I don't I don't know. So if if this series were published by Viz, like Viz proper, I think it would have a lot of, you know, the discourse going on about it and I think that's fascinating. I don't think We need creators or publishers or genres to tell us what is or isn't gay about something. You know, I'm never going to sit back and deny quality shenanigans because the story says isn't happening. You know what I mean?
1: I would like to see them try and stop me.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, But I do recognize the power of explicitly gay stories and characters. And I think that's most people. I think most people are like us. It's just if you're really online, and I am. Um, <laughs> they can feel like there's this pressure. Who Among Us is not. Yeah, it feels like there's this pressure or this push to make sure I know vocally, out loud, to other people, so they know that I know that they're not really gay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's really weird. Yeah, so there's this thing I discovered in 2018, and it's something our mutual friend Richard and I talk about all the time, or we really like, and I've started using it, and it's great. So there's this writer and editor and fellow anime nerdo, um, named Elizabeth Simmons, and back again in 2018, she helped fund a website dedicated to investigating and discussing anime and manga through the lens of queer theory, and the website is called Annie Gay. And one of their first articles was this really big, <laughs> long overview slash explanation on the various ways anime can be seen as gay, and it broke them down into what um, she called Queerness quadrants queerness quadrants. It's kind of hard to say out loud.
1: I do appreciate the alliteration. There. Yeah.
0: And it blew my mind. It's such a clear map and such a good tool and idea to really use when you're trying to talk about this type of media and applying queer theory. So here's how it works, basically. So there's like four quadrants and there's one, things that are literally queer, two, things that are explicitly queer, three, metaphorically queer, and then four, implicitly clear. So what you do is you can situate a show or a manga based on its many elements um, within the quadrant areas. So for example, Yuri on Ice can easily be placed between being literally queer and explicitly queer, while Devilman Crybaby is between explicitly queer and metaphorically queer. And Tiger and Bunny is in the most common quadrant, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is somewhere between being implicitly queer and literally queer, While JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and Tricordered Window, funnily enough, even though its publication is put aside, are between being implicit and metaphorical. So a big beautiful thing I like about this queer quadrant idea is that it changes the discussion of analysis from the question, is this gay, to how is this gay, which is so much better, (laughs) in my opinion, personally. So something like Sarah Zenmai, which is a series we both watched and cried over and blew our minds, um, <laughs> is it's... Boy, howdy. Yeah, it's somewhere, it's explicitly gay, but it's also heavily metaphorical.
1: Yeah. I mean, th- there is, there is like an actual out gay character.
0: Oh yeah, for sure.
1: And the relationship between two characters is like heavily coded as romantic.
0: Yeah. So it's explicit and then metaphorical. And I consider Tricord and Window to be similar to that, but mirrored within being outwardly implicit. So, you know, they never do the dirty, but still deeply metaphorically. So you get the allegory of what it's like being queer and trying to have a self-identity without anyone guiding you. You are making everything up yourself. You are finding your people yourself. You are, you know, figuring out your ideas of consent yourself. You are doing all the work yourself. So implicit metaphorical series to me, be it anime, manga, comics, games, novels, whatever, is characterized by the abstraction or symbolism within the trappings of literal queerness. So things like otherness or marginalization or found family, self-acceptance. And it conveys queerness entirely through a combination of metaphorical subtext and coding. So again, Serizenmai has obvious two gay men who love each other, (laughs) very much so but it also has this undercurrent that's through coding of other characters and other situations that is just as valid, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and sometimes I feel like people focus more on the explicit, which is, again, totally, val- totally normal and understandable, but dismiss anything if it's not. And a lot of the times, series that are explicit still have these other qualities to them, and then series like Tricorn and Window, if it wasn't published in Yaoi would be probably dismissed do you think there's like a generational aspect to that because i know we sort of I always i want to i don't want to say there is yeah I, I thought for a while maybe there was but i don't think there is
1: because i know just sort of like anecdotally it seems more common to me to be talking to like queer people who are younger than me and you know they as they rightly should have come to expect oh yeah like
0: they want way more than me which is totally fair like <laughs>
1: canonical acknowledgement of yeah. there being like queer characters and queer experiences within the text. Whereas people of our generation, we're kind of used to doing the, the work ourselves. You know?
0: Yeah. I I think the reason I like implicit metaphorical stories... I'm not trying to say that as like, you know, kids these days don't know how oh, yeah, no, no. back I, in I'm, my day. I'm not I, I doing think... like a full Yorkshireman No, I totally... Like, I'm up there just, with you. I think you. it's interesting. I, I think... Well, yeah, mostly I think it's interesting. I think the younger... People younger than me have done in a way more work than I have to get more openly queer characters and stories. I think we we've paved the way in a certain aspect, but blah, whatever. Anyway, yeah, no dig to the young kids. Don't come before us. We're for you. We're on the same side. Um <laughs> but I think the please reason counselors, Please don't <laughs> I think the reason I like implicit metaphorical stories has to do with the unexpected and that self-discovery aspect, you know, that's embedded in those type of experience. And I it gives me personally a sense of control mixed with wonder a lot of times. Like there's uncertainty within these kind of stories, within titles like Tricornered Window, Megalobox, Ava, Gundam. Sound euphonium free. (laughs) Um, The first seventh season of The X-Files. Like, I like...
1: (laughs) Like any given season of Common Rider.
0: Yeah. Oh, God. I like that tension (laughs) of implicit romance. And I like it when maybe the characters themselves don't really know their own feelings or how to take or read events. And that feels really realistic to me, even within the total unreality of, like, a mech battle or demon exorcism. (laughs) Like, implicit romance... Feels more soulful to me.
1: I just want to say, Christy, I know how hard you want to you want to talk about Promare right now.
0: I'm doing nothing of the sort.
1: (laughs) I know that it's burning within you like a fiery brand. No,
0: no,
1: no, and you're just grasping it. Nope. To, to, to tamp it down until a more socially acceptable time for you to splurge your feelings out.
0: I'm being a really good co-host right now. <laughs> I just <laughs> want everyone to acknowledge me for a moment. I'm doing a really good job. <laughs> um, and um, If you
1: want, I could just take my headphones off. No, no, no. <laughs> and you can do it, and then no, you can clap. No, no,
0: um, And then my last bit here is another more personal reason I think I latch on to implicit, metaphorical, queer stories, again, and I like using these queerness quadrants, and I am very much for, one, allowing people to guide their own way through stories, and then, two, again, I I don't feel the need to demand, personally, people do characters and things the way I want, you know? Because, and this may sound weird, and it makes sense to me in my own inner space, and maybe it does to other people, but it feels to me that as a bisexual person there is this intense pressure to prove I'm bi a lot of the time and to prove I deserve a space in the LGBTQIA community and that pops up a lot in more serious discussions of queer medias in ways I don't think people realize and that they don't really necessarily intend and one of them is the idea that media isn't queer if it's not explicit and that something like Tri-Cornered Window where it and yaoi would be positioned to prove it's gay or not and that to me it's a stone's throw from demanding media to be canon gay only to understanding real people in the same way and I find myself genuinely uneasy when I see over and over again and because I'm a very online fanish person that the only real gay media is explicit and I can't help but internalize and understand from that interpretation of media to be as an indirect kind of indictment on my own actual existence (laughs) like it's classic overthinking on my part and, you know, slight narcissism, certainly. But it does, I know, show up the most common as a form of biphobia, which is always prove it. Like, as a bi woman married to a man and I have kids, I'm not a canny gay <laughs> and I have nothing of worth to share with the queer experience. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. what it feels like when people make that argument sometimes. And it's really hard to kind of worm your way in and be like... Well, <laughs> actually, you know, so I I this series really I think has given me a, a way to think about it and and give me the terms and words I need to express why I like these kind of stories, and that's why I wanted to share it with you so I could, you know, express that of myself and then, you know, share it with you basically because we're friends and I love you. <laughs>
1: yeah, love you too. I mean, that's kind of the like the gist of the show also. Yeah, I think everything we recommend to each other is on the basis that we think the other would enjoy it. But there's also a kind of element of I want to talk about this. Yeah, <laughs> I want to force someone to have to talk about this with me.
0: Absolutely.
1: I want a I I platform for these thoughts. <laughs> so I'm more than happy to provide that. But yeah, I really, I really enjoyed the comic. I liked, you know, I like the artwork. It's got a very kind of like scratchy quality to it that really kind of sells the unease. I think. And the way that the protagonist is kind of like on edge all the time, it's got all this like subtext going on that. Yeah. I, I agree with Christy and that, you know, a lot of the time I kind of find subtext more interesting than actual text.
0: I do too. And I genuinely don't know if it's that just from experience and again, our, our fanish generation or whatever, or if it's just something that I would be doing anyway. You know what I mean? Like I really don't know. And it doesn't yeah. matter at this point. I mean,
1: if I see, like, you know, if, if there is space for queer subtext in media, for me, that's like a thing for me to go, I can make my own thing out of this.
0: Yeah, it's that's what I meant when I said it gives, makes me feel like I have more control.
1: Yeah. It's less about sort of ownership of a thing that you're a fan of than it is using it as like a raw material to extrapolate and build on the kind of feelings that it makes you have.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because when a series is more explicit, I feel like I, I have less of a say, I suppose, even in a fanish space to do what I want. I feel more beholden to their characterization and respecting that relationship and things like that. I don't I don't know how to describe it, which that might be more of my age. <laughs> that part specifically might be more of my age.
1: Yeah. I mean, okay, occasionally there is discourse online about people like head canoning characters who might be sort of canonically somewhere on the queer spectrum as being in a slightly different position and people sort of i don't know it's (laughs) i want to be really careful how i sort of characterize this because it it might sound like i'm being like dismissive of people which i'm not trying to be but there's kind of like a mindset that i think of as the queer hogwarts mindset (laughs) where (laughs) it's like it's like very, very rigidly delineated into different aspects when a lot of the time, you know, there's, a, there's I mean, I identify as bisexual but I identify as bisexual in a way that a lot of people would use the term pansexual mm. it's just, you know I came out when I was 16 and that was about 19 years ago so I tend to think of myself as bisexual and there's like a whole sort of like history of bisexual like literature that goes back to, you know, the fact that it doesn't just mean attraction to binary genders and stuff. Yeah. And I think sometimes... The flags don't help, I think. I understand why the, <laughs> the flags, flags exist. The
0: flags! I love the flags, but I hate the
1: flags. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the flags are like I, the
0: Hogwarts houses. I get it. I yeah. totally... I laughed when it's you like, said that because I was just blown away by how accurate it was.
1: I understand why the flags exist. It's just... Like you said, you know, I, I kind of... I bought like a rainbow hoodie once And the reaction I got from some people was, you shouldn't be wearing that because you're not gay. (laughs) And it's like, shut up. It's (laughs) colours. Also, most of the flags are fucking butt ugly. So there's (laughs) that. Like, the original lesbian flag had an axe on it. That was cool. I'm not a lesbian, but I'm just saying, I'm Welsh, so I have a very high standard for flags because I want a dragon (laughs) on it. It's like, do you know you can do that? Did you know you can put, like, monsters on You can do whatever you want,
0: really, yeah.
1: We can have, like, a bisexual werewolf.
0: We should. Makes sense, really.
1: But yeah, so I think a lot of the time it's like... Say, like, if there's, like, a character who is a lesbian and someone headcounts them as bisexual. You know, if lesbians have a problem with that, then you're like, obviously, yeah, I understand that. I understand why. It's just...
0: Does it really matter in the wider scale?
1: (laughs) I think the root problem is... But because there are so few queer characters in mainstream media,
0: there's a possessive ownership over the ones that are identify with your identity. Yeah,
1: people have to take what they can get. Oh, for sure. The flip side to it is, I mean, I I used to like reblog on Tumblr fan art. This is like Voltron fan art. Yeah, you know, and I still do sometimes like fan art of that was shipping Shiro with Princess Alora. They liked it like revealed that Shiro was gay, and it's like. The kind of, like, implicit reaction a lot of people had to that was, well, you're no longer allowed to draw him in a relationship with a woman. And it's like, my position on that is, like, as long as the queerness of a character is being treated as a secret, then I'm not going to fault anyone who, like, hasn't factored it in to their ship it's like i don't think it's reasonable to say to people who've invested all this sort of like time and feelings into the ship to say your ship's not valid you know it's been
0: sunk now yeah
1: i sentence you to invalidity and it's it's interesting to see that with the tricornwood window because because it's incredibly vague and it's more dealing in kind of like feelings and almost like symbolism
0: yeah it's like abstract symbolism it's it's great <laughs> Yeah, I love that shit. I know
1: that, like, if if you had a mind to, you could hold this up as like the the epitome of queer baiting.
0: Yeah, easily.
1: I think you know that kind of misses the point of what it's doing. It's not so much queer baiting as it's using. I don't want to say tropes, but
0: common story beats
1: yeah and it's also kind of like allegorizing like queer experiences and i know that like that that's not for everyone certainly like in terms of like racism we've got to the yeah. point now where people's like we don't want like a lot of like sci-fi and fantasy is predicated on the idea of oh what if racism happened to white people wouldn't that be fucked yeah. up um
0: <laughs> now we care
1: yeah <laughs> yeah but um you don't have to make it magic to care about queer characters yeah. but my view is like that that's conversations that you have with the cishets, all right? I'm I'm bisexual and trans and non-binary. I just get to have a good time with this. I mean, I think about it critically because I do about every you know all the media that I consume. I try to think about it critically, but at the same time, don't at me. Yeah, you know,
0: <laughs> I'm yeah. 34
1: or 35 years old, and I do not need this.
0: <laughs> the way I go, I look at it is, I think I lean towards you know the implicit stuff because. Again, it's that control factor. If if no one tells me outright, you can't do this, then I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want. And so if the canon's really subtextual and it's more allegory or it's more what I can see in it, then I I feel like I have this get-out-of-jail-free card, this free space on bingo, where it's like, anything goes, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And anyone else can do whatever they want. Like, I don't really care that much <laughs> what other people are doing yeah.
1: frankly it's why like because i see like sometimes on twitter people talk about like ships um i see a lot of it like in transformers fandom of the like igw comics especially where people will say you know this ship isn't valid and i don't know that's like that's their opinion and it's often done as a joke but yeah like there are people who, i know who they genuinely don't like the idea of say like shipping Windblade with starscream whereas like <laughs> my view is that's a pretty interesting parent but, i was you know,
0: just gonna say that's the most interesting parent <laughs> frankly.
1: <laughs> you can get some interesting character interactions out of that, which is kind of the point of shipping for some people.
0: Yeah. I'm, for me, it's always about what's the most interesting and fun. And that's not always necessarily the most happy thing. and It's not always necessarily the good thing. And I think that's maybe a generational thing that, again, I'm not punching down on any kids or anyone younger than me. I have no intention of doing it. I just, I do sometimes look around I'm like, I don't think I get it anymore. (laughs) It's the Grandpa Simpson moment, you know, where I'm like, "Uh oh. I was just thinking that. (laughs) They changed the it, and now I don't know what it is, and I'm old.
1: (laughs) I used to be with it, and then they changed what it was, and then what I was with wasn't it. And it'll happen to you. It'll
0: happen to you. It'll happen to you. And I kind of am like, well, if I'm on some continuous timeline and my bus stop is here, then I guess I get off here. Like, I can live in this space I've made. So far, this much up to this point, that's fine. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm not a fan artist. I think maybe sometimes the different areas in which people express themselves in the fanish space can be more of a target depending on blah, this factor and that and blah, blah, blah. Um, I just do fan vids, which have like no views anyway. Yeah. And they're not like min app fan vids or anything. So. <laughs>
1: I think the view that sort of people tend to have of, of like me and you is because I think I've seen people sort of say this to both of us is we like the this, this stinky garbage characters. I
0: love the stinky garbage man. And
1: sometimes we like the stinky garbage media, but we don't try and kid on that they're not those things.
0: Oh, yeah, no, I'll own up to it in a second.
1: We're very I upfront that we like the garbage. I like and the garbage. And the thing we like is garbage. We're not going to try and... I mean... <laughs> like, Chris, Christy is not the kind of person who will bullshit you into trying to believe that like killer kill is a feminist masterpiece
0: oh no i'll talk to you about like the classes a minute and like its interesting <laughs> aspects <laughs> of like japanese uniform culture absolutely 100% there for it but i love Next bounce i like when boobies bounce and i will watch it <laughs> for the boobie bounce and if you ask me i'll be like boobies bounce in it that might be a, a deal breaker for you but it sure shit isn't for me <laughs> Yeah. I play dead I think... or alive, people. I don't give crap.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the general consensus that I've seen seems to be that it's not so much when people do like things that are, like, for want of a better term, problematic. It's when they try to pretend that the problematic thing isn't. Yeah, is there's like... a
0: fine... It's, it's one of those <laughs> I-know-it-when-I-see-it type of things, which is yeah. so irritating. <laughs> but it's true.
1: <laughs> I've gotten pushback when I talk about you know, like before, when I talk about like the racism in Lord of the Rings. And it's like A lot of the stuff in Lord of the Rings is like undeniably racist. Like, you know, we know from like Tolkien's writings that he held racist views and people say, oh, well, it was, you know, it was a product of the time where it's like, that's not really an excuse because there were like anti-racist white people in Tolkien's time. Yeah, But at the same time, it's like, so what? Even if it was like not an unusual thing at the time, you know, it's like when people say you can't judge like a historical work by today's standards and it's like, yeah, you can.
0: Yeah. You can do both. Guess what? I'm doing it right now. Guess what? Try and stop me, bitch. You can do fucking both. (laughs) It's good to understand things in the historical context. That's really good. It's also great to be able to pinpoint why it's not good (laughs) in our context now, in the contemporary context. You can do both.
1: I can understand why the Merchant of Venice is the way (laughs) it is. That doesn't mean I have to give the Merchant of Venice or William Shakespeare a a pass. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's dead anyway, bitch. Why do you give a shit? <laughs> like, yeah. Whatever. He
1: ain't getting any deader.
0: Who am I harming? Like, you're, the art's still here. Yeah. It's still a classic, and it's still going to be performed. I can just also say, hey, fucked up. Huh? And you know, if if
1: someone were to make the criticism of the tricornered window that it I don't is think engaged- they would
0: because of the Yowie publishing, but as an exercise, if it were, absolutely go on.
1: <laughs> yeah. If someone wanted to make the argument that it is like engaging in queer baiting, or it's like operating in like a similar space to queer baiting, I'd be kind. Of, you know, my response would be kind of like, "Yeah, that's fair." Yeah, no.
0: You know, I, in that context, I'd be like, "I see what you see." It's
1: like I understand how you've arrived at that conclusion. I understand every step of the process, and I'm not even saying that I disagree with it. I'm just saying, like, if you just want to reduce it to consumerism <laughs> by me buying every <laughs> single volume of Tricornered Window. I've given money to a company that does publish like explicitly gay stuff, stuff that will fall on like the the farthest gay end of the spectrum that Christy was talking about. Ugh. Stuff, you know, stuff where stuff goes in butts, the 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 butt <laughs> the butt touching stuff, you know. Yeah. So, doesn't exist in a vacuum.
0: Yeah, my frustration is more in the realm of more in the realm of how this is again an online a very online feeling is how the discourse can sometimes feel like people are. Indirectly trying to corral you into believing or thinking of something a certain way. Yeah. And if if the tricorner window was published by Viz and it was embedded in a discourse of queer bait or not, I think my frustration would be like, yeah, I see what you mean. I don't disagree. However, I think we are also capable of looking at this material with again these these the, the idea if we're starting to look at things more on the question of how it's gay and live rather if it's gay, yeah. then I think you're going to open your world up to a lot more possibility and a lot more fundamentally life-giving material. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I, that's where I, my yeah. frustration would be.
1: Analysis and critique I think would benefit if it was approached with the mindset that you're not trying to find like the empirically right answer. Yeah. You're just exploring different aspects of it or like different readings. You, you can read like the way that like Tolkien's Christianity influenced Lord of the Rings in a positive way yeah and at the same time you can acknowledge the racism of his work and you know you can provide like cultural context for it and everything but what you can't do is pretend it isn't there and you, you kind of like can't pretend that either isn't there you know it's like you have to kind of engage with positive and negative aspects of a work in the same way that you know an author's intent doesn't matter at the same time you can't like definitively discard it yeah it's like when people say separate the art from the artist like if that's someone's choice then go nuts but i don't understand the point of that because it's like part of the reason that i'm consuming this art is to relate to the person who created it you know i sure know not not like in a direct (laughs) personal way it's just it's like this is the thing that someone created i don't understand the idea of of consuming media and not being conscious that it's like a thing created by A person or by people you know yeah
0: I think that's something that's up to everybody individually to decide how much they're gonna give the author and who they are versus what their product is you know their art is and what it's saying or what they think it's saying and all that and what it says about them or what they're trying to say about other things I think that's all just something everyone comes up with on their own it's just for me for the online space the internet being a thing where I engage you know my fanish output the most, and for being a place that says the author is dead a lot, it doesn't feel like that a lot of the time and i i I think it's an interesting shift, and i I overall think it's been a good shift. I think it's important to understand who's making things and why you know if they're gonna share it with you or to understand who's making things and why through their work itself. I think they're both completely good and I think they should be in tandem you know and then again though it's up to everyone to kind of come up with their rhythm themselves there is no set answer and that's the real clinchpin of why I get upset sometimes when I see things that's like this is bad and I'm like well yes but no <laughs> you know <laughs> like it's this very I found that, like, I'm not, it's not
1: so much that I give, like, queer or even queer-coded media a pass, it's that I have more patience for it. Yeah. Which I know kind of sounds like the same thing, but it's more no, like...
0: No, I, I understand. I'm personally.
1: more likely to give something the benefit of the doubt if I can tell that... Or even if, you know, if there's just space to, like, interpret it that way. But a lot of the time, it's like, if something is, like, definitively heterosexual, I'm just like, yeah, whatever.
0: I, I feel the same way. I mean, I'm at that that point myself a lot of the time. I think I have more of a patience for strictly heterosexual stuff in general, but that's a lot through just experience and that's all you had to eat off of for a long time. So <laughs> you get you get used to the taste, you know. And I can like dip into that and I like my K drama, but a lot of K drama is really subversive, which is a completely other podcast. Um, but uh on the surface, I'm it looks... I'm sure one day you'll
1: recommend me a K-drama as a pretext oh, to talk gonna, about that. It's
0: gonna happen. Um, but on the surface, it looks, you know, crazy, super rom com whatever. And sometimes it is. And sometimes I like it. And sometimes I go, you know what? This isn't really working for me. And that's just personal choice. When it comes down to it, kids, it's personal choice. <laughs> yeah. Like everything. <laughs> But tri Corner Window is fantastic and you should definitely get it and you should buy it so that they buy more Yamashita manga and bring it over mm. and that Sublime can keep kicking because they're yeah. like a godsend.
1: There's five volumes of Tricorner Corner Window at the moment. There's a six volume due out in October, which is yeah. next month as we record this. I think it's if even if you just like, you know, horror, it's worth a look because, it you know, a lot of it's quite lighthearted, but at the same time, it does have that kind of like creeping atmosphere of unease. And dread.
0: It's a good experience in suspense. Yeah,
1: you know, I did find some of it genuinely scary to the point where I couldn't read it at night because I was like, nope,
0: nope, nope, nope. It's
1: like when I watched Kingdom, the the zombie series on k Netflix. Yeah, I watched that during the day, and then at night I was supposed to work on some writing. I couldn't do it because I'd have to sit with my back to the window, and I was just like, nope, no, I don't I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Not right now. Um But, yeah, overall, Tricorned Window is good. I like it. I'm going to buy the next volume when it comes out. You've cursed my dick once more.
0: Yay!
1: <laughs> oh, that should have been the name of the show.
0: I grow more powerful each day. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, so, I've kind of... I don't really have anything else to talk about it. Do you?
0: No, nope, I, I, I've covered all my bits. Thanks for letting me... Platform slash discussing with me
1: and no, it's cool. Um, I think this new format we're trying out works really well because now we don't. Now we don't to... have to skip it. <laughs> now we don't have to go. Okay, dis- disregarding that entirely, let's talk about a completely different thing. Um, but we will be talking about a different thing. We'll be talking about um the anime Token Ranbu Hanamaru, uh, which is the oh. thing that I recommended to Christy. So that'll be the next episode after this one. So bye.
0: Aloha. Still in Halloween <laughs> <laughs>